0: If you went to regular college, you might be able to appreciate the uh, the the importance of innovation. Be yeah. Mm. If you went to regular <laughs> college, you would see the inevitable decline of the West that would emerge <laughs> if we started <laughs> controlling drug prices.
1: Yeah, you know what? You know what? The Cooper Union doesn't teach you how to regurgitate a CBO report. <laughs> and pharmaceutical company talking points into a vox explainer article no
2: no exactly i mean and that's really the problem that's that's why i am such a deficit of a person this is a good place to start right why not
1: yeah so we can get into our main thing can biden save christmas
2: Welcome to the death panel to support the show and get access to the second weekly bonus episode just for patrons become a patron at patreon.com slash pod and if you want to help us out a little bit more you can always share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes or follow us at death panel Underscore.
1: Also, if you didn't hear the one from Tuesday, one of my favorites that we've ever done, mm-hmm. I think whole hour and 20 minutes ish on Catherine Page Harden's new book, The Genetic Lottery, which we spoke about <laughs> about a month ago in our public feed episode, The Eugenic Lottery. Um, <laughs> and I have to say we had not read the book before that uh, we recorded that episode. And having read the book and discussed it thoroughly, it did not disappoint right by our, some metrics our, I mean. <laughs> our
2: predictions based on just reading the new yorker profile absolutely panned out and then delivered so much and more then some yeah, yeah so check
1: that out um on our patreon
0: and it's and it's nicely timed if you if you put that on and then you put on the video with no audio from the wicker man the original 1973 <laughs> wicker man, it syncs up really nicely oh and yeah
1: just, totally that's our yeah, that is our um that is that our dar- so that's, that's the, our dark side yeah. of the moon yeah oh, exactly
2: <laughs> highly recommend that episode patreon.com slash death panel pod anyways plugs over and aside Today we're, uh, as already joked, we're talking about Biden saving Christmas. We're going to check in on the conversation around the supply chain, which has been an ongoing and sort of nebulous issue. But also, it's been used over and over again as this kind of straw man, right? Like we we heard about it uh, early on when it came to like PPE. You know, there was discussion of the supply chain throughout the pandemic. The role of the supply chain, the potential for bottlenecks, the slowing down of like the, you know, consumer good distribution loop, right, has always been the sort of specter that's been haunting every discussion of sort of the economy and whether or not we can keep things open or closed. Yeah. And this week, they've just announced that what they're going to do uh, to try and reduce some of these bottlenecks is shift the the port of los angeles to 24 hours a day and a bunch of companies that are involved in logistics like ups and fedex as well as retailers like target and walmart have now committed to doing more 24/7 operations to move more goods at nights and on the weekends so that we can make sure that all of the things need to that need to get to the shelves by christmas will get there or whatever
0: yeah i feel there's there's this is like one of those problems that I think like the pandemic itself, it ends up being this covering issue that that helps to conceal every single one of its like potential causes or the causes of its like extremity. And like I can't help but think that this the whole idea of like, oh, we're going to keep the ports open Mm 24-7 is it's like this convenient like image, but it really like for a variety of reasons as a policy solution to this doesn't make a lot of sense to me because that's not like really the issue with what's happening at the port. Like a lot of the complaint was like, Oh, well the ports are like closed on Saturday and Sunday. They're not closed on Saturday and Sunday. It's just that truckers can't come in on Saturday and Sunday because there's literally no place like the port of Los Angeles to keep the trucks. (laughs) Uh, Like there's, they're unloading things, right? So, you know, like that, that's like one aspect of this. Like the other aspect that I, I, I want to get into is just like, this is not just like about like port labor. It's also about truckers and like 40 plus years of like a shitty job getting shittier and people not wanting to uh, very understandably, like not participate in that like shitty economy. But the, the bigger thing that's like on the back of all of this, that I think is just like completely missed. Is like, this is a demand driven issue right mm-hmm. like there's the like the level of demand that's like now spiked because there had been some like a somewhat of relaxation in demand during the pandemic but now like demand is sort of like spiking and the demand is for this like this level of just-in-time delivery that's that's insane
1: right well i mean except for i do think the demand conversation becomes a part of it specifically when um a lot of i mean i think a lot of people in business press have taken this opportunity basically to say look this is the evidence of the overheating of the economy that uh people like larry summers et cetera, were warning about we did all this stimulus for so long it's difficult to find reporting on this honestly that like does not reference you know someone saying like oh we did all this stimulus money etc for covid Mm -hmm. and so consumer demand is up and that's the problem and not the and the problem not being you know the kind of like rise under capitalism of like just-in-time production and and distribution and and shipping and everything like that but also also just the fact that i mean like for example I i think it's a little uh spurious or frustrating that like the Biden administration just took this uh this tack that was like this is kind of simply a domestic issue we're going to deal with this by you know opening up uh the ports for longer this is why we should uh you know pass the infrastructure bill etc when like it's pretty much internationally understood that there is i mean there are like quote unquote supply chain issues Of everywhere and largely this is due to I don't know an ongoing global pandemic that people are mostly wanting to ignore to me this is this is also like very much indicative of kind of what happens when you know to a large extent you especially within the United States for example we like rush back to normal uh, just pretend everything is okay when it's obviously not and while simultaneously we're while we're basically simultaneously uh, upholding This global vaccine apartheid while also essentially expecting the very same countries that we are restricting vaccine access from to be our own personal fucking sweatshop.
2: I I mean, no, that's such it's such an important point Artie, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that in, because if you compare and contrast the urgency with which the Biden administration has dealt with, let's say putting pressure on Walmart, right, or putting pressure on Target or putting pressure on the unions to get their, um, to get union leaders to commit that their uh, workers will do this 24-hour, um, do this increase in hours, do these overnight hours, do these weekend hours, right? They have put a lot of effort into putting pressure on these, quote unquote, you know, industry players, right, to f- fix the supply chain issues um, at the retail level, at the at the individual level, where like the average consumer like experiences it at the grocery store, at the sort of decentralized last mile delivery. But, you know, the alternative, right, is like a strongly worded condemnation about what would maybe be morally not OK about Moderna not delivering its full order to Kovacs. Right. Like so, like, <laughs> right. you know, the Biden administration is willing to force American workers to, like, lay down their lives so you can buy whatever the fuck you want at Target for Christmas. Right. But they're not going to, like, force <laughs> the vaccines to be like made available right and like it's absurd
1: and on this point actually i actually i have some uh, some stuff that i uh found while i was looking into this that i just want to i just want to make sure that kind of actually is towards the beginning of this conversation Yeah, go for it so actually for example if you look at countries that are identified by outlets like the wall street journal and uh i don't know if a business insider or forbes or whatever as like <laughs> p- as countries that are um, you know having their own quote unquote their own supply chain issues or that are you know where for instance like factories have closed down because of a large amount of COVID outbreaks and stuff like that and that's affected this production that we outsource that is then also obviously you know there there are so many it's basically like the obviously the pandemic and the the horrible ruins that capitalism is is like inflecting every aspect of this right so right. It's, you can't focus on just one but if you focus on for example like where some of these things are being produced um so here are some of the countries if you look at some of the countries that like are identified uh as places that are having places that are you know causing some of the supply itself or whatever of like goods that we have produced elsewhere to be reduced in terms of coming in here are some of those countries vaccina- vaccination rates mm-hmm. actually okay okay so thailand only 33 percent fully vaccinated Currently, hmm. Vietnam sixteen point six percent fully vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, Indonesia twenty one point four percent fully vaccinated. Myanmar seven point one percent fully vaccinated. And uh, I know it sounds like I'm done, but just a, <laughs> <laughs> just a couple I'm things just because up. it's really important to. <laughs> it's, sorry. These numbers never these numbers these numbers are really important. if you think about okay, these things take time right supply chain, et cetera, the whole thing right is like, like within months human
2: hands still make things even if they're very far away no,
1: I mean just that like literally the supply like supply coming in you know the the speed of global shipping, et cetera right. it's literally like if you look at the w- the delays in things coming now, et cetera or in production as far as, like, we then experience it as, you know, people within uh, exploitative imperialist countries, right? There is a time delay on that, right? So if you actually look, it's even worse if you look at what the vaccination rates in those countries were a month or two months ago. So, for example, oh, hell yeah. Vietnam, which now has a 16.6% fully vaccinated rate, as of September 1st, 3%. 3% of the population had been fully vaccinated in Vietnam, Thailand, which now has a 33% uh, fully vaccinated uh, vaccination rate, 11.8% September 1st. Malaysia, which is now 66.7%, which Mm. is much better, which is better than ours, frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, As of September 1st, it was 47.4%. But as of August 1st, it was just 21.8%. July 1st, 7.5%. So this is all recent, mm. like very recently has that even rolled out. Myanmar, uh, as of September, uh, Myanmar, again, currently that's 7.1% vaccinated rate. The vaccination rate in Myanmar as of September 1st was 4.7% percent. And this is all coming from like the Financial Times uh, tracker. So, you know, if there are different or conflicting numbers on these, you know, at me or whatever, but this is I'm just taking it all from one source, basically. So I I think this is an important
0: point, right? Yeah, That's a really important point, because I, I think this is, again, kind of one of my like sticking points about this. The whole problem here is that as the complexity of the issue increases, you can choose whatever cause you want and focus on it to, to yeah. a- and ignore exactly what we're doing in not uh, going harder on trips or not going harder on like Kovacs uh, to th- that. That essentially is like keeping some of these conditions in place. Um, and, and like it's worth considering all of the other stuff that's that's also been off the table in this discussion. Like, for example, Like, why is it the case that supply capacity is as weakened as it is? And the answer to this is this political economy that firms have built up over the last 20 years or so, 30 years or so, where the whole logic was uh, you can't have extra storage space at a port. That's (laughs) going to be like, that's going to like drain your profits. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't like keep some rental cars. Uh, in reserve even if demand uh, shoots down temporarily that's just from a profit standpoint ridiculous to try to manage that fleet and then lo and behold you sell them off and then you know several months later um, oh whoops looks like it's really expensive to buy those things back and so you're gonna have <laughs> fleet management problems so it's right. the, the, the same
1: the, shit that we talked about with Abbott Laboratories destroying mm-hmm. all those COVID tests over the summer mm-hmm.
0: so so the the bigger issue here is the the this like it's this is why it's so funny to me the idea that like uh price controls sent like planned <laughs> the idea like planned economies is such a ooh terrifying word and oh didn't we learn that like you can't like rationally plan economies because information about the world is, is like distributed and actually it's market actors who have like efficient access to this information uh can like better sort of like self-organize and coordinate well isn't it obvious that this cannot happen now like isn't it obvious that like leaving the hand off the till is entirely what has has helped to produce this, and more than that, allowing uh, firms like uh, Pfizer to dictate the policies of hegemonic countries that have the actual like purchasing power to you know f- you know effectively uh, help to deal with this problem elsewhere. Uh, help to deal with the the low vaccination rates. Like all this does is perpetuate the crisis, and it, you know in a way this this idea that uh, Oh, it's such an irrational and and completely unbelievable thing that you would propose the idea that we we might want to do some like central coordination of economies in crisis situations, is so off the table, right? I yeah, I I keep coming back to this like don't. It's really really easy to fall for like the misdirection of like oh it's just what's happening at the port and like if we like you know (laughs) deal with this like one particular problem it's we've created a set of kind of complementary institutions which have led us to a point like this where you are seeing you know supply chains but of course that's a very difficult thing to talk about unless you're willing to talk about capitalism directly and right. so what happens <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is you open so this is the thing is that like the whole uh, you were joking before it's like is Biden gonna save Christmas and like you know are people gonna blame uh are, are they gonna blame like ex- too, too generous unemployment benefits for the reason that like I can't get like the Christmas ham loaf you know at uh at, at Piggly Wiggly um <laughs> (laughs) Um, Like that is. Yeah. Of course, people are going to believe that. Of course, they're going to believe that because you as long as you don't at least try to rhetorically tackle the idea that a completely like uncoordinated uh, economy where we've allowed the profit motive to dictate and and like the the decentralized interests of large firms to dictate uh, the way that we approach an economy, even in crisis conditions, uh, unless you somehow deal with that. Then any number of uh, stupid and uh, but but, you know, plausible uh, explanations to, you know, the, like the average consumer or even the sort of more informed consumer, the person who listens to NPR, which NPR is, you know, of course continue to like rehearse yeah. um, will, will make sense.
2: Yeah, no. And it's honestly the, to even say really that this is a issue of a supply chain, right. To even be framing this as the supply chain problem or as issues with like the distribution market economy right is in and of itself actually like a misdirection too right because it hides what the actual problem is because this is not this is not a supply chain issue this is a global labor issue issue, right? This is a issue born out of the decisions that have been made, particularly in the United States, that we have then sold to the rest of the world and imposed yeah. on the world, as we talk about all the time, through trade regimes and through you know international NGOs and through these sort of property legal frameworks, right? Um, Like we've talked about over and over with uh, Pfizer and with the vaccine and with vaccine apartheid, the same things are true for trends in how workers are treated and what companies value more, like what is replaceable, what is interchangeable. The worker itself, the person who is working in the job, who's working on the supply chain, right, has become so... Abstracted from the relationship. The equipment is more important. The logistical systems, the systems of austerity are more important than the people that are in the system itself making it run, right? And this is something we see with Amazon. This is something we see with Walmart. This is like, this has been the preference of how capital firms have expanded by running these super lean operations that treat workers as if they can be subbed in for each other, like like tokens or something in um some sort of game right like where the people don't matter and the benefits don't really matter because it's really just about having a competitive advantage against the other firm so like the actual worker becomes abstracted right to like uh, subsumed as this sort of just like flea on the production cycle right <laughs> and that's that's the way that this is being talked about right like the the biden administration is out here being asked questions like well What has China got to do with this? Because China has a zero COVID policy. So when there's like one random case of COVID, like in some province in China, they're going to shut down all of the factories. And then are my kids going to get Christmas toys. And this is a legitimate yeah, that's question. That's a
1: common blame line too. in the press <laughs> right. also is right. like the countries that are doing the lockdowns are to blame also for <laughs> right. production issues, et cetera.
2: A- and it's like, these are legitimate questions that reporters are asking like Biden's press people. And these are the conversations well, that we're we
1: legitimated questions. Right. And
2: these are the questions that these are the discussions that we're having around this. Not, oh, I don't know. Um, Considering the fact that the Biden administration hasn't actually released any OSHA protections for anyone other than healthcare workers, like is this safe? Is increasing like port like the port hours to twenty four seven and telling Walmart to go twenty four seven and telling Target to go twenty four seven, literally they say to in their press conferences to like tell to send a message to other companies to also go 24-7. Nobody is sitting there asking them the question, is this going to contribute to spread?
1: Or what else are you doing to to stop that? Or like, what are you going to do to
2: to protect those people who like the union bosses have just committed to working those hours? Like, are you doing anything to protect them? And no one is asking that question.
1: I think that's such a good point to bring up. And uh, this is something that I wanted to mention, too, is that like, the very this is why i mentioned like the the response here cuz this has been obviously you know this has been a thing that people have been crowing about for a really long time uh the the supply chain issue and and especially in the last couple of weeks but like um and really i think coming to a head this week but then the biden administration like responding with this you know we're going to open the ports to, specifically like for instance the the opening the port of los angeles for like 24/7 right um making sure that that will uh, be open 24-7. I just want to uh, point out a couple of things. You know, they're, they're quick to say, for example, in their announcement, you know, it's not just that the port has, you know, ag- agreed to be like open 24-7. It's also that Labor, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, ILWU, has like made the commitment to do those hours to operate at 24-7. I just want to point out that just... <sighs> Again, as is saying, the wisdom of doing this in a situation where it's, you know, still a global pandemic, as opposed to like doing anything that might, I don't know, make if, if if the if the whole problem that people are talking about is how like, oh, there's a there's a shortage of workers or whatever, or there's, you know, whatever, whatever of the myriad other talking points that we haven't even addressed yet that are, you know, all of the things that are, are other reasons that people think are contributing to uh, not like staffing shortages, etc. Mm-hmm. being part of this like supply chain issue. Of all of that, you know, if you're not going to also do, like, be mentioned, like, strengthen OSHA protections to make sure that, like, maybe it can be a safer work environment overall for everyone. And then instead you're going to say, like, okay, by the way, you operate 24-7. Here is a here is something from um, October 2nd from uh, the Washington Post. This is a quote from mike podu the president of that same union the the uh union that runs the uh port of los angeles the ilwu uh local 63 he says our members are tired our members are feeling the pain of these covid deaths we are lucky there hasn't been a major accident that is two weeks ago and now they're being asked to go 24 7 and in that same article uh, from the Washington Post, October 2nd, they note that 20 union members have died of COVID-19. OK, yeah,
2: this is this is exactly this is what should be the top line in every single story about the supply chain but instead it's about motherfucking christmas presents and snacks and halloween decorations and all these other point of purchase you know like the direct end of the line thing and we just completely forget that at every fucking step of the abstracted supply chain which is just really just like the cap the capitalist ecology of extraction and (laughs) you know what i mean like there's a person you say
0: tomato I say tomato
2: (laughs) you know there's people there like I don't know if a lot of our listeners know this but like before I was disabled and I retired like (laughs) I worked in like luxury fashion in wholesale and I like worked on the back end with a lot of the people who like make clothes and make the things that clothes get shipped in and make the tags and make the tag guns and make all of the stuff that makes a retail operation possible and like when I was first getting started, like the industry was very different. Right. And shipping was slower. And, you know, when stuff got stuck in customs, like you actually were able to talk to like a fucking person at FedEx back then, you know, and it was like a very different situation. And like labor changes happened while I was there. And as the like, FedEx operation decided to like disenfranchise its own workers, right? And and make its workers 1099 and UPS followed suit and this huge trend throughout logistics starts, you know, in the mid 2000s shifting towards like this even more austere practice. It just got shittier and shittier like and the job just got harder and harder to move stuff around and it's gotten cheaper and cheaper throughout the pandemic. And in this quarter, right, if you compare like E commerce sales in this quarter of 2020, this past quarter of 2021, it's like up 40%. People are like shopping online. This has become like a huge, huge, like, you know, traffic ecosystem, right? Where like these shipping companies run their employees into the ground. They treat them like they are disposable fuel. It's like, just as bad as the shit we talk about with nursing homes, right? Like we, we've talked about this on the show all the time. One of the big companies that sort of offers a way of competing with the shipping speed of companies like Amazon is something called XPO Logistics. And they operate like the Verizon cell phone factories and like the Best Buy distribution and all sorts of stuff comes via XPO Logistics. If you order delivery from Ikea, it shows up in an XPO Logistics truck. Like, this is sort of a a last mile company, and Louis DeJoy, who is the current like guy fucking up the USPS, is an old executive of XPO Logistics. Yeah, and like
0: you you may know XPO Logistics, incidentally, uh, been in the news recently. I think some of their drivers just won a what was it thirty million dollar. Settlement for wage theft Mm
2: -hmm. So that's the kind
0: of company XPO Logistics is
2: Yeah and they're notorious for accidents You know workers have been crushed by countertops Workers have died on the Factory line um, from Exhaustion disabled Workers have had heart attacks And like then their bodies have been left on the Floor with cones around the bodies For hours before EMS is called You know these are companies That treat the people Who are the flesh and blood and bones of the fucking supply chain like they are meat, right? Like this is ex- as extractive and as destructive on the workforce as meatpacking is, right? And I think if we push operations to 24/7 in all of these workplaces, you know, what we're doing actually is we're offering an incredible opportunity to push selection on the virus right and it's so funny because in these press i've been like digging through like press briefings where you have like rochelle Willinski, the cdc director and dr fauci from the nih and then you've got like pisaki and you've got all the like biden people there sort of answering questions about like the supply chain and also about like covid protocols and and where we're looking at in terms of like are we going to hit a point where covid'll just sort of calm down and things will go back to normal and it's very telling because in the same conversation you have people being like well okay so you know you have this mmwr that shows that like 1 in 4 children have lost a caregiver yeah. and this is really bad and like then like a couple and they'll talk about that and they'll be like yeah it's really devastating and then a couple minutes later someone will be like so I'm a late shopper I always <laughs> leave things to the last minute and like are my, am I going to be able to guarantee, can can the administration guarantee that my kids' presents are going to get there on time? And it's like in the same conversation, there's no connection made, right? No discussion of like, well, as we just discussed two minutes ago, one in four children have lost a caregiver. This has like resulted in significant amounts of people having to leave the workforce to do child care, first of all. Second of all, You know, CDC's own estimates show that, like, we have been undercounting deaths, right? Like, the highest projection of excess deaths is over a million people. But even if we're going with the conservative number, with the official COVID death toll, it's like 700,000 people. Like, this is a workforce that has been gutted at a very specific socioeconomic level. We are about to push that same socioeconomic level into like capitalist overdrive after decades of this specific industry getting more dangerous more lean more austere like in this endless death spiral Mm -hmm. this is like asking for a disaster
1: no but yeah but christmas uh, presents but christmas presents presents. presents.
2: and halloween candy
1: well and i think it's important to note that to circle back to like the osha standards for example that just never appeared like this was one of like it, it is important to just reiterate i know we've said it a bunch of times but just to reiterate that like osha standards for covid protections were like one of the initial promises Mm -hmm. of the biden administration when biden came into office they issued an executive order saying that osha would review its emergency standards for covid and that they would issue a report by march 15th saying like what they were going to do march 15th of this year that date came and went you know again i know like it just this all just bears restating basically i know we've said this before but like that date came and went and when COVID OSHA standards did get put in place, they were only for the healthcare sector. Basically, even those have failed to be like totally adhered to or sufficient. But at least that was like something. Most recently, they obviously did their vaccine mandate, but they've still said nothing about, you know, ventilation mm-hmm. or other like just mask or masking or other really important stuff sick that sick could leave policies. Pro- sick leave policies. Yeah, exactly. Protection
2: from retaliation from employers. If you organize to try and, I don't know, get hazard pay. Exactly. Exactly, uh, or get PPE access like
1: yeah so you know the, the fact that this still hasn't been done is again really important to keep in mind because it's not like you know as, as we've talked about a million times like the Biden administration is doing everything it can to give the outward appearance that they are doing everything that they can do you know what I mean yeah mm-hmm. of course
0: no but I, I think that this is the issue for for Biden is that he and, and all the people around him is like it's just ideologically impossible for them to begin exposing this thing that we've, we've like keep as a secret from American consumers, which is the process by which they get the goods that they need. And you begin to actually expose what that process is. You do actually start challenging some of like the hegemonic like basis of, of capitals control because you're like, Oh, actually this is really stupid. Uh, this is a terrible way of running an economy. Uh, this is a terrible way of like getting things uh, that I need. But we, you know, that that is just an ideological impossibility. And so this is the thing they he will suffer the political consequences for it uh, because he's not willing to actually deal deal with the problem itself. Well,
1: right. Because if your goal is to uphold and maintain the political economy and the various structures of power within capitalism, if that's what you're I mean, that is what the Biden administration is doing Mm -hmm. right then yeah you kind of can't or it is highly unlikely that you will take any of these even like basic public health precautions apparently um like the like the osha standards that we're talking about
2: right exactly and it's frustrating to see the the urgency and care and attention with which the administration is directing like their efforts towards like making sure that the retail shelves are full, you know, because I think the the sort of the, the firmness with what what they're doing, what they're what they've been willing to do clearly in terms of like forcing people into these labor situations um, in order to produce this vision of normalcy, really like a visual normalcy in stores, because one of the big concerns is like, oh, well, there is like there are shelves empty and like one like the stores, the way that like we think of how products sell right is that like the supply chain and the logistics component of it is like incredibly important because you can have like all the product in the world right but if your product is not going to be able to get to the door then your potentiality for profit like goes out the window right so all of these like companies that make shit they think of their their inventory as like being essentially worthless until it's at that final location, right? So like what, what they clearly care about, right, is like protecting those little tiny potentialities and that hope for these companies, right? And like the same care and attention could be directed at literally anything else, right? And you could have like really interesting results, but like we don't run like our our society that way, because like that does not like really fit with the goals of capitalism. Right. And I, and I think what you're seeing right now is like some people have been saying like, oh, this is just, you know, capitalism doing its thing. Right. Or like, you know, normal, like this is a normal day in capitalism or or whatever. But, you know, I think I think we are reaching a point now where so many mistakes have been made in the way that we organize and govern logistics that what I think we are seeing in real time is actually the system breaking down. And the system of distribution, I think, has been breaking down for a really long time. And the cycles of product lives have only sped up. Durag- durable goods basically don't exist anymore. You know, the, the replaceability and the amount of waste with which things are being produced right now has, has I think, reached an unsustainable pace and has been at this unsustainable pace for so long that that what we're actually seeing is that the system really only works if absolutely nothing goes wrong with the rate that you can replace workers. But if something impacts the re- rate of worker replacement and the ability for companies to just cycle in new bodies when the bodies fail or are fired or or are fed up right like that is when the system breaks down right and I think it sort of actually shows it shows how vulnerable capitalism actually is in a way yeah.
0: and not just we should be seeing the soft underbelly here like that's yeah, actually yeah. there's there, there's a there's a very I think seen in one way there is some optimistic there's some potential optimistic things to take from this is like there's is an incredibly weak and vulnerable system
1: yeah shall we move on to talking about uh dylan scott stenographer to power
0: oh no yes
2: yes
1: please because it's kind of I part and parcel good shit. so um this was a late addition to our agenda for today <laughs> But I think we couldn't help but notice uh, that uh, Dylan Scott of Vox recently uh, published a piece called, uh, what was it, Can the U.S. Cut Drug Prices Without Sacrificing New Cures? And if this sounds familiar to you at all, or if it's like, uh, you know, tickling something in the back of your head, it may be because uh, just last month, about, about a full month ago, basically, We did an episode called Sacred and Profane, um, which was about one of the CBO reports that Dylan actually cites in this (laughs) article, which was essentially uh, this thing where uh, the Congressional Budget Office had... Uh, asserted,
0: projected,
1: with, but in the psychological sense of that yeah, term, <laughs> exactly, had uh, had projected that um, you know the basically the, the pharmaceutical industry talking point uh, that the common pharmaceutical industry talking point was correct that essentially if you reduce drug prices in the United States, you will stifle innovation and you will have less drugs and we may save less lives. And now, Dylan. <sighs> Um, has helpfully done, you know, one of, one of these little, uh, Vox explainer articles on it. And I just thought that we could, um, ruminate on just what a
0: hideous piece of trash this is. All right. So let's, let's just like cut to the chase. (laughs) The, if you thought that this CBO report, which is like, we're going to get X, no X fewer number of cures was sort of ridiculous for a variety of, like for a variety of reasons, like one. They don't talk at all about the idea that the you know, failing to know that the, the, these data are based on like in surveys of pharmaceutical companies on their spending. These projections are, are fundamentally like based on those. Right. So, yeah, definitely not an information asymmetry there that you, you want to deal with in any way. Um, it, additionally, the idea that they, they don't make a distinction between what kinds of like drugs you're going to like quote unquote lose out on you know are they going to be like the new breakthrough cures or just like you know something that there's just uh you know a recycling of you know old ip um (laughs) no you would you would think that like maybe it would be worth being a little bit more you know circumspect about some of these conclusions and a little bit more humble but you know, Dylan actually sort of puts the the foot on the gas yeah, in this article totally. because ultimately, to me, the like the the really like the 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 money piece of this article is uh, it, citing to a study that said, "Wow, if we imp- implement drug price controls, life expectancy would drop over fifty years unless innovation were not somehow tied to pharma revenue." which the authors considered unlikely. So like rather than being like, hmm, let's actually like you know, solicit some opinions from uh I I don't know, for example, like an associate editor of the New England Journal of Medicine who uh definitely is you know, entirely like dubious of all of this, like so-called like projections that, you know, CBO and others like purport to do about uh, pharmaceutical, like what pharmaceutical companies will or won't produce or, or, or like what the reaction to their, even if it happens, uh, lack of production would be um, rather than like get, getting like a sort of a, a decent, like smattering of opinions it seems to just go for the economists who are like dyed in the wool like pot committed to the idea that you cannot touch uh <laughs> drug prices in the United States you know without like essentially unopening the puzzle box from hellraiser and it's just like and that's like the world in which is like projected it's it's yeah. this is um I, if this is explainer journalism uh i it is just simply explaining what the positions of people in power are yeah
1: absolutely no his uh, his research for this article was just walking into instead of like going to any of those people with arguments like the ones that you mentioned Phil he just like walked into a room of like muppets with like pharmaceutical <laughs> executive like I hands mean- up their asses basically um and talked to them you yeah know, no but uh, we
2: we do know that the the lobbyists at PHRMA have been shopping this story to journalists hard and to activist groups hard for Well, they
1: reeled in a big one. I so. was to say
2: it's been about <laughs> 90 really days one. of them kind of selling this one. this story, right? <laughs> and like Dylan Scott, like the good little boy he is, bought it hook line and sinker. So yeah. he just took this like steaming pile of bullshit and regurgitated it with such flair.
1: Yeah, so let's um I'm just going to I'm going to read just a little bit of this uh let's get let's get into some of the ideology here. <laughs> Here's the setup. Congress's ambitious plans to expand health coverage are crashing up against one of the great questions in health policy. (laughs) Can they force the pharmaceutical industry to hold down prescription drug prices without sacrificing the medical innovation that could lead to new treatments and cures in the future? The pharmaceutical industry warns that the price controls that are contemplated in the Democratic bill would lead to fewer new medications and ultimately hurt patients. So who is right? It's a question academics and analysts have been trying (laughs) to answer for
0: years.
2: By asking karma what they think and then repeating it.
0: (laughs) Academics for years have asked the question, how is Babi formed?
1: (laughs) Quote, the U.S. is the biggest pharmaceutical market in the world, representing 60% or more of the industry's global profits. Mm, Shouldn't that just be
2: like a red flag right there? You know what I mean? The proportionality of that. (laughs) I'm just saying.
1: Nobody can say for sure what would happen if the world's largest prescription drug market by far, suddenly instituted government price controls, the Congressional Budget Office estimated in 2019 that international revenue from new drugs could drop by as much as 20 percent. <sighs> Many analysts agree that this means the industry would spend less on research and <laughs> development.
0: I, I want to like get to the base so like we could like debate about the data, we could debate about the idea that it's the absence of price controls that is what generates the r&d is the <laughs> fundamental like theoretical core of this piece and all of like the the bs that like pharma puts out and like yeah. some of the basics of this right that that is simply not true like if it like if it were true it, it it's so absurd because it's their ability to make a huge profit with doing as little innovation as possible, <laughs> right? They, they realize that they they can do, make these duplicate drugs. The idea that like it's the the absence of of price controls that's like what's what's leading to innovation like neglects all of the evidence that most of like the revenue that these companies generate is through completely non innovative like not new uh, products, and it's because it's boundless what they can. Uh, accomplished by doing as little as possible it's it's amazing Whoa. how la- how lazy that absence of price controls makes them
1: well and fundamentally just that re- i mean the other really important part of it is that the most significant r&d that happens for the most part for pharmaceutical companies is publicly funded research that exactly. then gets like rolled up into pharma ip right
2: right and i mean if you think about it the 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 theory right the the baseline theory here if there are price controls there will be no innovation <laughs> supposes that what drives innovation is lots and lots of money, right? Nobody gets out of bed for less than $10,000. Remember that, that 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 thing from the 90s? It was like Linda Evangelista got in a lot of trouble because she was like, me and Christy Turlington, we don't get out of bed for $10,000 a day. <laughs>
1: That's pharmaceutical companies. That's
2: exactly <laughs> what the argument is. This yeah. is Dylan Scott is saying, listen, Pfizer doesn't get out of bed for, 10, 000, for less than $10,000 a day. <laughs> Merck doesn't get out of bed for less than three point four billion dollars a day. You know what I mean? And that is that really a valid argument? I would argue, Uh, no. But yeah,
0: I mean, I just think it's like I think that the statistic is over the last decade, only about a third of FDA approved drugs have provided even moderate improvements (laughs) uh, beyond what is already on the market. A third. Well, so, yeah, I'm I'm Yeah. Color me suspicious of the idea that the the sky will fall if we start doing price controls.
1: Well, which is, yeah, which is mostly to say, I think that if we actually, you know, had total public or, you know, public international control over pharmaceutical development and production, we would actually be able to. Focus on a lot more things that could help a lot more people as opposed to, you, you know, you're right, like evergreening certain things by putting it into like an $800 uh, auto injector, for right, example. Right, right. So
2: it's just worth stating we do not need pharmaceutical companies, nor do we need like a profit driven market to encourage research and development. That yeah. is a lie and a myth. We
1: already do it publicly, most of it. Like most right. of it is actually just like literally government right. funded. It is so. the
2: biggest lie. It is. It is full of shit.
1: Well and then the funny so the funniest thing is so later in the article, Dylan says, uh and he this is kind of like a he admit it moment. It's like he but <laughs> although he's he then spins this as a positive thing, he says <laughs> He spin it as positive thing. Uh, <laughs> he spin it as positive, exactly. He says, uh Quote a lot of that money, their profits. A lot of that money goes into research. About twenty-five percent of pharmaceutical industry revenue goes into R and D, meaningfully higher than the amount in other "quote unquote" innovation industries such as telecoms, according to the CBO. Mm-hmm. Now, I just want to pause there. First of all, okay, <laughs> you're saying that a bunch of money goes into R and D. You're admitting here that only a quarter of that money goes into r&d you're certainly not comparing it to like the amount that is spent on marketing Mm -mm. or any of that and fundamentally i don't know seems like it's probably a pretty lousy fucking comparison not only of dylan scott but of the cbo of the congressional like by the congressional budget office to compare it in any way to the amount of r&d spent by fucking telecom companies who are I don't know, among the most hated of industries too. Like, um, I mean, yeah. pharma, I know pharma's is number one easily, but like telecom industries are themselves, you know, not really... Uh, not great, you know. So I don't know. Anyway,
2: yeah, an interesting research question would be like, when they cite that proportion, what are what are they actually even citing? I bet you, like, for all we know, that one quarter of spending for <laughs> on R and D could just be like people's salaries in the R and D department. Yeah, you know no, what I mean, ab- like, exactly, like exactly. There is that citing that without explaining what that breaks down into, maybe like. I don't know. Maybe that's irresponsible or maybe I'm being a little bit strict, but it kind of feels like with pharmaceutical drugs, which I don't know, save people's fucking lives all the time. And like a lot of people need them that it's like worth not fucking around. And it's also worth saying again, like literally we do not need pharmaceutical companies at all as institutions to make drugs (laughs) to save people's lives. Scientists will want to do that research on their own. Scientists get out of bed for way less than $10,000 every day. And
0: and this is the important thing, right? Is that he's, I think that the line that like the CBO or others will try to say is like, well, you know, we're assuming that uh, there will be, you know, that nothing else changes. Uh, (laughs) This is the effect that price controls would have. But that's a really, I mean, okay, fine. You can assume that the question is whether or not that's a you just because uh, it, it like makes it analytically easier to carry out the the projections, of, which are, by the way, just of, of completely like negligible and dubious value because they don't tell you anything about well, what drugs are produced and what aren't. But like, let's let's leave that aside because Dylan does. Apparently, <laughs> um, the the question is whether or not is not whether or not it's like good makes things analytically feasible the question is whether or not it's a reasonable fucking assumption about the future <laughs> yeah. and it's not a reasonable assumption about the future the idea that like we're going to like lose out on these huge innovations that are going to cost they're going to shave off i shit you not the projection from the rand study is like 50 years from life expect- <laughs> 50 oh years from life expectancy oh, no, no no
2: no no it's it's 0.7 but the way that he f- Phrases it, he's intentionally trying to make it appear like it's 50 years. It's 1.7 or 0. 0.7 years over 50 years. Like okay. the Rand study <laughs> from 2008 projected that
0: <laughs> oh over my God. 50
2: years, Even
0: worse. we wow. would lose. Wait, is it really that bad? Less than oh a year my. of
2: life expe- expectancy. I swear to God, if you read the sentence, where oh. that is. Right. It's.
0: I
1: got it. Quote, CBO explicitly said it did not attempt to assess the influence of price controls on America's health, but RAND analysts tried to do that in 2008 and found that with drug price controls, life expectancy would drop over 50 years unless innovation were somehow not tied to pharma revenue. Would, d- would drop. Oh, OK. So by 2060, that projected decline in life expectancy for both Americans and Europeans would reach approximately approximately 0.7 years. Okay. Okay, so over that, 50 years, it would drop by 0.7 it, years. That
0: sentence yeah. is the most misleading sentence absolutely, ever written. Like,
2: absolutely agree. Su- like,
0: why a copy editor... Almost like, suspiciously like, suspicious. poorly. That is suspiciously this misleading. stinks that's fucking, of like, copy-paste from, yeah. yeah. copy so like, from the press yeah, release. shit I've ever seen. Yeah. Copy-paste from the press release. So, okay, R- regardless, my point stands. Let's just say... Again, that 50 years thing is just ridiculous. But like, yeah, let's just say it's even (laughs) 0.7 years. The idea that you're going to like miss out on these huge cures and there's not going to be any push within government, uh, any push among the public to like, you know, generate investment. Like that is a reliable, like big ticket item, like go home and collect all the prizes uh, sort of legislative act and you're you're going to tell me that congress is going to have no motivation to do that in the future that that's that's unlikely that in your like uh you know oracle of delphi uh like b- political analysis you've like that is just pre- fucking preposterous and it's it's uh, it is such a trick that you're like, well, we're you know, we're 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 not trying to like, um, you know uh, Make make ro- two rosy projections about the world. It's like yeah, m- try making a reasonable one for fucking once
1: <laughs> Yeah, so uh, let me let me hit you guys with another uh, he spin it as a positive Um <laughs> I love that quote. There is nowhere like the United States of America for the pharmaceutical industry. Americans have unparalleled <laughs> access to cutting edge treatments if kind they of. can afford them <laughs> because they also pay higher prices for prescription drugs. The United States accounts for between 64 and 78 percent of the drug industry's profits across fuck. the world. I mean, Again, fuck. this, th- <laughs> like, just. Even sitting and writing, I mean, I know that maybe it was just copied and pasted or whatever as B's asserting, but like... Even just sitting and writing that, you have to maybe think, like, maybe there's, a, problem. maybe there's a problem here. So, yeah. The United States accounts for between 64 and 78% of the drug industry's profits across the world. Americans pay about 3.5 times more money on average per dose of medication, brand name and generic, than Europeans. Some of that is borne directly by patients through out-of-pocket costs. And some of that cost is paid instead by insurers who then pass on those costs in the form of higher premiums. As in, all of that cost is paid for by all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, then he says the thing about uh, the uh, the telecom thing, as I mm. mentioned, going on to say, U.S. pharmaceutical companies and ultimately American consumers and insurers subsidize drug research and development for much of the rest of the world with at least 40% of the world's pharma R&D originating in the United States. So basically, this is, I mean, I think this get, really gets to the heart of something, which is one, he's basically, literally he's spinning this as... Yeah, we pay more than everyone else. Yeah, it's extremely expensive. It seems like it's a problem that it's so expensive. But look, they get most of their profits from us. They also need to do this R&D, which I've, you know, I'm asserting over and over with their fucking boot in my mouth that like, I'm going to take them at their word on all of this and how important it is that they specifically do it and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, that just means that basically we beneficently, like, subsidize with our, with our generous overpayment and the fact that so many people, like, can't even get fucking access to drugs. Mm-hmm. We just generously overpay for these so that we can fund the R&D that makes it possible for, like, the pharmaceutical industry to, like, distribute drugs to the rest of the world. And, one, that's <laughs> disgusting. That's just absolute disgusting trash bull like that is a trash bullshit argument mm-hmm. but two, think about this I mean we talk about we talk about like the pharmaceutical industry and like the capital strike problem all the time if between 64 and 78 percent of pharmaceutical industry profits come from the United States Don't you think that maybe if we fucking did drug price controls, and I don't mean HR three, I think HR three is fucking weak. I think the, the drug pricing controls bill that like Congress is trying to pass now. Yeah, sure. It's a start, but like that's, there's, there's so much more that you could do. There's so much further that like needs to be done. And don't you think, but just don't you think that like acting on that, that possibly if, you know, upwards of fucking 78% of pharmaceutical industry profits come from, from the united states that perhaps i don't know much like every other industry when a capital strike is threatened where it's like oh we'll just pull this out we'll stop doing RD, we'll do whatever are oh, gonna get all like, those profits it's from obviously
0: America. not gonna fucking yeah. happen it, you know, this is a, this They're is a always great thing, empty like, threats there's structural power and then there's bullshit and it's, and it's <laughs> often very difficult to find the the thin line between them because structural power goes both ways Right? there's an there's a potential there's always a potential interdependency because while the state relies on capital for you know things like investment in a, in a capitalist economy, capital also relies on the state for a hell of a lot and if you think yeah. about who the biggest purchasers are and if you think about uh, the fact that it's it's not going to be uh, entirely possible for a farmer to just somehow concoct an international market when the United States is you know, as in demand uh, of these uh, products as it is. I mean, this is just, you know, there's being like hard edged and analytical about like capital's power, but there's also just like really thinking seriously with like with reference to where, where market revenues come from for these firms about what their power really is and what is just a fucking shadow puppet Uh, Play that they like put on uh, Mm -hmm. For all of us and And more importantly a Shadow play that is fucking underwritten And produced by organizations like the CBO underwritten by So-called like independent journalists uh, By people (laughs) like 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 Dylan Vox Like this is (laughs) There's like capitals power But then there's also this like this sophistry that goes on that all it does is aid and abet the idea that these are powerful firms that cannot be tangled with lest we wreak holy hell on ourselves, like the guy in Hellraiser who opens his <laughs> own puzzle box.
2: And furthermore, I would argue like one, read Arnie and I's piece for the new inquiry, Pfizer Walk with me, like Pharma and this relationship that you're talking about, Phil, and this sort of dynamic and this story, which we also there's a great interview we did with Alex Zaychuk from over the summer um, where we talked about the drug story again. Also, like this story has had such a long relationship in the maintenance of U.S. imperial power, too. This is like, par- like the problems with pharma are like the same problems that we have with the United States in general, right? Like these two, the, the industry of government and the industry of pharmaceuticals are so incredibly dependent and tied up on each other because it's really important to remember like what is the thing that's actually, what is the commodity actually here? What does the commodity do in society and to the bodies of like workers, right? Pharmaceuticals prepare and repair and re-prepare the body for work, right? Like people take drugs to be cured in order to be productive and get back to work. Like we take Z-packs when we get bacterial infections to get Better, faster, so we can get back to work faster. Like the threat of a capital strike from pharmaceuticals is bullshit right like the, the the economy needs these drugs in bodies right because this is how our workforce is like made productive and made quote unquote healthy so like beyond like any of the other like bullshit that we've been talking about right like the the essential nature that pharmaceuticals have to like capitalism right it, is so key and so much of this game and one of the reasons why they're so protective of even the most bullshit Milk toast, vanilla Reforms like like This drug pricing bill, right, that we've been Talking about, HR3 It's like, oh, why are they fighting something That's just, uh, you know Barely, barely, barely A dent in their profit Why, you know, why do you see People like Dylan Vox, like you know, coming to such robust defense, <laughs> robust defense of like, you know, really gentle stuff, like caps on copays or shit like that, you know, and it's like, it's, it seems absurd at first until you realize how important pharmaceuticals are, like for the, the maintenance of the workforce, right? So this is like, this is one of the big, like, you know, sleights of hand. This is like the prestige, right? You like you cannot destabilize capitalism if you don't also take profit out of health and pharmaceutical development, because like one of the key things that like is the tool that capitalism uses to continue and persist is its control over pharma's ability to extract profits and for that relationship of maintaining the worker to be one that can be monetized. And like that's why it's so important to push for drug reforms like and for way beyond the milquetoast shit that, that that we will see on the table because we know they'll fight anything so like why are we like being careful about what we're asking for
1: yeah well and this is why we're talking about this thing in particular because obviously this is you know whatever this, art- or this article is like of a type right right um but it is exactly the kind of thing that i think demonstrates how common it is to just kind of like see these things repeated or to see the just to see this sort of pure ideology repeated as though it's just like objective mm-hmm. fact or whatever. And what what this does ultimately, you know, what, what things like this do, it's not merely that like Dylan Scott is like acting as a stenographer to power, which is also true. Like this is just a very bootlicky article. But it is also the fact that like when it is socially reproduced over and over and over again like well there are trade offs like if you do mm-hmm. this then we're going to have less innovation we're going to have less drugs we're going to have like we, there are all these attendant problems things are so complex like when you mm. throw that thing when you when you throwing out the line of like oh i i want i want things that are better However, things are so complex that when you, you know, you have to be so careful about what you adjust, etc. That is just, you know, a fundamentally, uh, it's just a, a very standard tool of hegemony that is just fundamentally demobilizing.
2: It's a counterinsurgent and tactic.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's well, like yeah,
0: a, it's like, the tra- incidentally, whenever the, the line is, oh, you have to think about the trade-offs, it's, <laughs> it's never said, like, yes, you have to think about the trade-offs and... <laughs> uh, it yeah. could go. Uh, you know, uh, it's like it's always like you have to think about the trade-off. So you can't. You certainly can't do that. Okay, can I trade away um, capitalism for the other yes. thing?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah How about that trade-off
1: <laughs> um, Speaking of which uh, Please uh, Please leave a negative review For our sister podcast Trade-offs um, <laughs> Just kidding I, We have no We have no association With them obviously However Is that
2: on the hill Or I
1: don't know That No trade-offs is, Trade-offs is the heinous uh, Health policy podcast It's like It's basically it's like, like this It's like um, Dylan Scott's Simpering in audio form Basically ah. He's not on it But you know what I mean yeah, it's, it's the one same the, It's, it's like, the like an orange
2: deal. cover uh, I don't even know. Yeah, it's ugly. Well, and if you want to support the show, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod. We do two episodes a week. This is the free one. As we said at the top, the patron episode from this week is a true fucking banger and um, we highly recommend it. So patreon.com slash death panel pod. If you want to subscribe and listen to the takedown of the new woke eugenics book which mm-hmm. I'm sure will be part of the holiday Christmas debate right God, there are yeah. supply chain issues there so the contents all connected
1: yeah um, I can't wait to see every last editorial roundup of books that you should consider as gifts it's gonna be like in the same way that um, what was J.D. Vance's book called? Uh,
2: Hillbilly Elegy it's
1: gonna be uh, it's like we're gonna be right up there with like Hillbilly Elegy yeah on the uh, you know maybe maybe uh they'll get a really horrible netflix movie
2: the movie version of the genetic lottery uh, Yeah. Oh, god well and if you want to help us out a little bit more you can always share the show with your friends you can send your family the katherine page Hardin episode and say please do not buy me this book for the holidays you can post about your favorite episodes or follow us at death panel underscore and as always medicare for all now solidarity forever stay alive another week